morning, Crosspoint. How are you? Delighted to meet a few new people here this morning. Welcome to the first of three services. My name is Bruce Garner. If we didn't meet in the, in the parking lot before the service began, my name is Bruce, and I'm the senior pastor here at Crosspoint. And among other things, that means that generally speaking, on Sunday mornings, I'm the one that has the privilege of opening the Bible with you. We have an amazing pastoral staff. They can all teach and preach, but more often than not, like it or not, it'll be me opening the Bible with you. And as a church family, we've been reading somebody's mail for a few months now. We've been in 2 Corinthians. If you'll open your Bibles there, and if you don't have a Bible with you, I say this nearly every week, but maybe it's your first Sunday with us and you don't have a Bible at home. If you don't have a Bible at home, you should find one near you in the seats around you. If you don't have a Bible at home, please pick a nice one from our pews and take it home with you. Call it your own. There is no substitute for reading God's Word. You can read the Bible without growing, but you can't grow spiritually without reading the Bible. It's as simple as that. You can't actually read it without benefit. You can be one who learns the Word and does not put it into practice. You can take it into your heart as knowledge and not receive it as wisdom and direction. And we don't want to do that. And this morning, the challenge for both the preacher and the listener is this passage does not immediately seem to have to do with us because we're reading something extremely personal in the passage that follows. Here's what I mean. The Corinthians were a church that Paul's preaching started in Corinth 2,000 years ago. And if you've been here for even a few of the weeks when we've been moving straight through his letter, you know this is a problematic church. A, they, a, they are sexually immoral, they are litigious, meaning they're suing one another. They're the kind of church that picks a favorite and plays favorite and feels self-righteous because they think the apostle or the preacher they like it makes them superior to the others who have a different preference. They're a mess. And if you read the two letters that are in Scripture that Paul wrote to them, you discover actually that God, for His own purposes and for His own reasons, only gave us part of the correspondence between Paul and the Corinthians. In the first letter, first Corinth, which we call 1 Corinthians in the Bible, Paul refers to a previous letter he had written to them, and in this letter, which we call 2 Corinthians, he's going to talk about a severe letter, which he had sent them. In other words, what's, go, what's happening with Paul and the relationship with the Corinthians, because his pastoral heart is broken over them, he is sending them a volley of letters and also two trusted associates, Timothy and Titus, that are going back and forth between Paul and this Corinthian church. He's trying to calm them down. He's trying to call them back to the gospel because in addition to all of their contentiousness and immorality, they've accepted and welcomed false teachers into the church that have turned the church away from Jesus. And since they're walking away from Jesus, of course, they're also personally, relationally, walking away from Paul. And if you read the letter straight through, and I know it's hard to read in the 21st century because we're accustomed now to seeing and to listening to things, whatever it takes, even if it's an audio Bible, those of you who aren't avid readers, whose mind wanders as mine now does, thanks to the internet, it'd be very helpful if you could listen to the whole letter in one sitting. If you have a long walk or a long drive, if you can just take a little time and hear the whole letter, 
you can hear Paul's heart in it, his discouragement. I think it's fair to say as we get into the text of what he wrote them that we're about to explore that Paul is confessing that he suffered with depression. And many people do, especially when they set out to do what Jesus told them to do. Isn't that inviting? Isn't that welcoming? Here's the thing, folks. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. If you're going to do what Jesus wants you to do, you're going to need the life and the power of Jesus to do it. If it's genuinely Christian, it takes the presence and the power of Christ. If you could do it on your own, it wouldn't be Christian at all. Does that make sense so far? My pastor, my mentor, my predecessor at this church, the senior pastor here used to say it like this. If you're doing the Lord's work, no wonder you're tired. Think about that for a second. You'll see there's some depth there. If you're doing the Lord's work, of course you're going to be exhausted. So I can read in the life of Charles Spurgeon, who's, I think, without question, the greatest man who ever preached in the English language, confessing to his congregation over the span of decades that he often struggled with depression. He told his church, I hope no one goes down as far as I have. That anxiety, that pressure, that fear, that outright downcast spirit is not unknown to people who seriously, thoughtfully, lovingly set themselves to obeying Jesus. Because what Jesus told you to do actually requires Him. He told you, for instance, to deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow Him how often? You remember this? How often are you to take up your cross, which is an instrument of death? Every day. He said to use your spiritual gifts not to fight and devour one another or seek your own glory, but to serve one another. Paul wrote the Philippians to not look out for their own interests, but also for the interests of others. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples in John 13 and said at the end, I've done this to set an example so that as I have done to you, you will do to one another. Because the dynamic in the upper room is the men are walking by the simple instruments of the servant that are meant to wash feet, and every one of them made a conscious decision. I don't know who's washing feet today, but it's not going to be me. And 12 disciples walked by the basin, set themselves to the holiest meal of the year, and then were appalled to discover that Jesus was taking on the clothing of a slave and quietly setting about to do the work that any of them should have done. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is in gratitude and obedience to the Son of God who gave His life for you You give your life in loving service, in obedience to Him to serve others, as He Himself did because He said that He had come not to be served, but to serve to the point of giving His life as a rescue for many people. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not a means to get the life that you want. It's the power of God for you to enjoy the life that God Himself has. It's not a technique, it's not an improvement, it is an exchange of life where you take your sin-wrecked life which fell far short of the glory of God, 
that broke God's commandments and violated your own conscience day after day, hour after hour, you humbly come to God, which is the hardest part of all and requires the grace of God Himself. You tell Him, I cannot save myself. I need you to rescue me and for you to take charge of me from this day forward. And if you do that, you'll actually live the life of Christ. In other words, you will be continually giving your life to God, in service to God, and because you're willing to serve God, you're always going to serve people. In his first letter, 1 John, John puts to end the hypocrisy of people who say, I love God, I just can't stand my brother. I love God, it's people I can't stand. But let's be quite real, and all of this has to do with the deeply personal letter I'm about to read to you. Let's be quite real. If Spurgeon could be depressed, if all the holy men and women whose journals and memoirs and letters accompany us to this day, if we read them closely, we read of their struggles, we discover that serving other people as Jesus would have us do can be deeply discouraging work. In fact, a national survey that I conducted said, told me that about a third of my fellow senior pastors would quit at any given moment. Think about that. Fully a third are in, by their own honest, anonymous answers, say, I'm in deep trouble. I'm hanging by a thread. Is that just the pastors? No, that's, that's the whole church. We've shattered that ceiling at this church, but it is well known to pastors worldwide that in any congregation, about 20% of the people do 80% of the service, 80% of the ministry. Why is that? Because it's hard to dethrone yourself and enthrone God and pursue service to other people. Once you start serving people, it's hard to remain grateful and excited about doing it. Many Christians never start serving, and many who once did serve get what a friend of mine calls I used to disease. <laughs> Are you familiar? The symptom is you're continually talking about the things you used to do. Oh, yeah, I, I used to sing, I used to teach, I used to counsel, I used to be on the deacons, I used to help with this group or with that group. What happened? Oh, you know, here's what we say I got. Well, an honest person would say, I got burnt out, thank you. More commonly, it sounds like this, I got busy. I just got busy. And there's no condescension here, there's no judgment here, I'm just orienting you to the reality that it is hard to do what Jesus said and to serve others. And the question is, if that's what God calls us to do, and if Paul himself was depressed discouraged, often afraid in doing it. Where should we find joy when we serve other people? Well, let's find out. Second Corinthians, please. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Listen to the plea. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Wherever you go to church, make sure that you have pastors and leaders and fellow servants like that. 
who by God's grace carry you in their own hearts. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Somebody can hear the echo of a very old hymn in that phrase. That's where it comes from. What's Paul saying? In the interlude where he sent this sharp, rebuking letter, and he could not know how they had responded, and Titus his associate, brought no report of how they had received it. Paul says, I was afflicted at every turn. Everywhere I turned, there was pain, and here's what's happening to me. I had conflicts on the outside of me and fear on the inside of me. Fighting without, in other words, everywhere I turn, there's an adversary. Everywhere I turn, there's a critic. Everywhere I turn, there's a false teacher condemning me, saying that I don't know Jesus at all, that I'm a huckster, that I'm a sham, that I'm self-interested, that I'm in it for the money. That's my external experience, and on the inside, I, Paul says, I find fear. Did you realize that Paul went through this emotionally? See, if, if you'll read your Bible slowly, it'll tell you what reality actually is. Some of you have I used to disease or never did it disease because you encountered emotional and relational difficulties somewhere along the line and you thought that was unnatural and unwelcome and that something was wrong with you or something was wrong with the church or the environment and you said, well, if it's like that, I'm not doing it. Folks, that's the way it is. Washing feet is not easy. Laying down your life for someone a day at a time is the hardest thing you'll ever do in service to Christ. Really serving other people in the name of Jesus will take the best from you. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast... And here Paul's thinking of the book of Isaiah. Paul's reflecting on his own experience and seeing it reflected in the Hebrew Scriptures, his Old Testament. And he said, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Where do you find joy when you're ministering to other people? Here's the first place that Paul found it. You find it by finding like-minded people to do ministry with us. Like-minded people who have the mind of Christ and want to serve as good Christians always want to do are an enormous gift from God. Don't miss the connection. Verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. In other words, just an ordinary man showed up, and Paul said when Titus showed up, that's actually the comfort of God to me. You'll never, ever, ever be able to understand word of, word of encouragement directed by God from your mouth, your email, or your pen to someone who is trying to serve Jesus will make to them. Maybe next Sunday I'll show you the picture. I've got a basket about this tall in my office with practically every kind note this church has ever given me. Now, why is that? Because every day when I walk, I can't leave my office without walking right by it. 
and it's a constant reminder of the people who have served as Titus in my life. If you've ever said a kind thing to me in writing, it's in that basket. Someday I'll get hit by a bus and someone will have to go through all that (laughs) and discover how wonderful you really were. I treasure that. And I'm in good company because Paul said in verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, that's the severe letter that he spoke about earlier, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that 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 letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into, what's it say? into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. It's a lot, isn't it? Can you hear Paul's relief? Paul's like a father of a wayward child who has long been out of touch, that the father only hears rumors of, and it's always frightful and frightening stuff. Every report is more ominous and darker than the last. Paul is enormously comforted. The second place that people find comfort in serving people, and this is something we never give up on, is number two, by seeing people repent and come back to God. That's what people who are serving Jesus are always on the lookout for. They're always hoping that their actions, which they undertake sometimes with a great deal of fear and trepidation, will always result in the people they love coming back to God. Look again in verse 7. Paul says, not only were we comforted by Titus' coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice far more. In other words, when Paul finally found Titus, he had actually made a trip looking for him just because he couldn't wait any longer to see what was happening back in Corinth. I sent them a strong letter, and I know it's going to be painful, and I just can't wait to hear how they heard it. Well, the way they heard it was actually incredible. Look at verse 11. 
For see what earnestness this godly grief and produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. What do all these words mean? Let me walk you through it. Paul says that their repentance, their godly grief, has made them eager to clear their good name. That they have become indignant over how Paul has been offended and mistreated that they have experienced fear. That's obviously reverence for God, that they've been displeasing to God, a longing to make things right, a zeal to be back in fellowship with God and with Paul, and a punishment they were willing to give out to the people in the church and those false teachers who had been slandering the Apostle Paul. That's what real repentance looks like. And one of the most important passages in this verse, and you can take this out of You can lift this out of these very specific circumstances and use this for the rest of your walk with Jesus to discover for yourself whether you're really repentant or just feeling bad bad and sorry for yourself. Here's what you need to know about repentance. First of all, it takes a great deal of courage to call for it. Look with me, please, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Chapter 7 now, and verse 5, Paul said, even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did. What's it say there? I did regret it. Which is it, Paul? It's both. I was scared to death to write that letter. I'm enormously relieved by the outcome. God comforted me by sending Titus back to me, and not only did Titus show up, he showed up with a good report, and he told me about the complete reversal in your attitude. And I I didn't want to make you grieve. I didn't want to make you sad with the letter. But I'm kind of glad that I did. You can see how up and down he is with it. Why? Because it takes courage to call people you care about back to Jesus. Those of you who have wayward children, wayward grandchildren, friends who are drifting ever farther from the faith, May I humbly suggest to you with my own fears within and my own conflicts without that the reason that relationship endures, the reason God has kept you in it is because Jesus has you there to arm yourself with the courage of Christ himself and call them back. But it's hard, isn't it? Because you think, if I say something, that might be the very end of it. Can you hear all of those emotions in Paul? He sent the letter and then sat at his table thinking to himself, boy, I hope that helped. I hope that doesn't finish the relationship off. I hope it restores it instead of destroy it. It takes courage to call for it. Second thing about repentance, it's painful for the person repenting. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. 
for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. What does Paul mean? He is expressing his gratitude that no harm was done. Let me distinguish two words for you that will help you in your own endeavors to disciple other people and to grow yourself under the loving but firm hand of God. Real discipleship, real growth from God sometimes hurts, but it never harms. And there's a difference. Your father loves you. He's given you his own name. He's brought you into the family. Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to call himself your brother. You're more loved than you dare to believe. You belong to God now. You're a daughter of God. You are a son of God. By the death of the only begotten son, you're an adopted son or daughter of the Father. He's going to spend the rest of eternity showing you his love. He's doing that right now. But in the interim, until he perfects you, what the Bible calls glorification, until he finishes his good work in you, which we will be sure to complete, Paul tells us elsewhere, he's going to make you into the image of Christ, and there is in you and in me a great deal right now that does not look like Jesus. Would you agree? And getting those things out of your life hurts, but it never harms. Sin harms. The discipline, the training, the correction, the nourishment of God, sometimes, not always, but sometimes it hurts because it's corrective. And that's what Paul knows is happening to the Corinthians, and that's why he has such mixed emotions of it. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces what? Death. Here's the third thing you need to know about repentance. It leads to salvation. Everybody facing the consequences of their actions is always grieved. But you need to decide and discern with the help of God at any given moment when the consequences of your action and the correction is catching up to you, am I experiencing a worldly grief or a godly grief? Because you'll always have one or the other, and sometimes it's mixed. How can you tell the difference? The person experiencing worldly grief, Paul says, does not change and, change and proceeds on to death. In other words, this is the guy on TV crying, but he's really deeply sorry for himself. He's not grieved before God. He's not grieved for the harm he's done to others. He's not disappointed with his failure, rupture, or exposure of horrible character. He's just very, very upset at what it's costing him. Verse 9 is very important. Let me read it to you again. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, which biblically speaking simply means making a complete U-turn. They were headed in the wrong direction. They did a 180-degree turn, and now they're headed back toward God, back toward Jesus, back to Paul. 
for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Again, there's hurt, but there's no harm. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Here's how you can tell, again, worldly and godly grief. The person who is experiencing godly grief may be willing to grudgingly admit that they're wrong, but they deeply resent the people who tell them so. Have you heard this expression, if you don't like the message, kill the messenger? That's exactly what Paul's concerned about because it happened to him so often in many of his dealings with these Corinthians, in person and by letter, he was telling them the truth, and they were getting farther and farther away from Jesus and farther and farther away from him. Real repentance leads people on to, salva to salvation and, very importantly, a fourth truth about repentance. Real repentance, because it involves making a complete U-turn, is followed by continued obedience to God. Verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. In other words, this wasn't really about you and it wasn't even really about me. But all this was done, Paul says at the end of verse 12, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Notice Paul lavishly, rhetorically describes the eagerness of their obedience, and that's the real proof. That's the final acid test. Someone who has actually repented continues walking in the new direction. Repentance is a 180. If you're doing a 360 you're still headed in the same direction. It's one of my favorite things to listen for in casual conversation. Well, I did a real 360. Well, then, I guess you're still headed in the same direction. You just lost a second spinning yourself around, right? <laughs> Repentance means that you're headed straight south to harm by the grace of God Often with grief, consequences catch up to you. The firm hand of your loving Father falls on your shoulder. You feel His strength this time to save you from further damage, and He calls you and pulls you back, and He sets you in the complete opposite direction of where you were going. And if it's real repentance, you keep walking in the direction which God turned you. Verse 13, therefore we are comforted. Titus, our like-minded brother who was willing to work for us and work with us, he came to us, he told us about your repentance, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Here's how Paul can tell it's real. Not only did they not kill the messenger, they sat him down in the living room and fed him. He said, thank you for telling us. And if I could just bring you into the pastoral office and the pastoral work for a quick second, I can always tell whether a person has actually received any biblical instruction or correction I give them by how they respond to me when the painful truth is set out between us. Well, that's your opinion. Well, no, we just read it in the Bible together. 
Here's what it sounds like to continue away from repentance and further into the damage that is already starting to mount in that Christian's life. They say two words. Watch for this in your own thinking as you read the Bible. They say, yeah. Can you guess the second word? But. And somebody told me that simple word erases everything that came before it. I know what you're saying. At Woody's years and years ago, and he went on to destroy his life as I knew he would if he wouldn't relent. Someone who was once a friend, who's now, as I can tell, has been lost not only to friendship but to Christ, told me he knew exactly what he was doing was wrong, but he didn't care. He wanted to be happy. He's been miserable in the decades that have followed. Sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go. It'll always charge more than you thought you would pay. It's always going to keep you in a bad place much longer than you were ever willing to stay. That's what Paul knows. That's what he sees on the horizon. And that's why he's so grateful that not only was the message received, the messenger was as well. Therefore, we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. What's this mean? Paul was telling Titus in confident Christian hope, these are good people. They really do love Jesus. They're confused, they're discouraged, they've been taught the wrong things, but I'm proud of them. Please take them this hard letter and confirm what I believe of them. Verse 15, his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I bet you didn't see this coming after all this emotion. Verse 16, I rejoice because I have, what's it say there? Complete confidence in you. Wow, what a turnaround. Where's the third place that people who want to serve Christ find joy? We find joy by seeing the people we serve grow and respond to spiritual guidance. This is all across the New Testament. The Apostle John wrote this. Read this with me, 3 John chapter 1, verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. See how fatherly that sounds? The greatest joy I could possibly have is to know that my kids, the people I brought into the faith by the grace of Jesus, are still walking in the truth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 16, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. What a turnaround. What made the difference? Their repentance. Because Jesus takes everyone he calls down the exact same path of Christ-likeness, of wholehearted obedience to the Father, and now for the first time in a long time, Paul sees it in the Corinthians. So what should we do about all this? Because we're not the Corinthians, and I'm not the Apostle Paul. Why is this here in the Bible? Now that we've explored this, what specifically should we do about it? Three suggestions. Number one, if you are not a Paul, be a Titus. Not everyone can take the lead, but every single one of you can be an encourager. Did you hear me? You're reading the the letters of the Apostle Paul saying, I could never guess what. You're right. He was special. 
He was unique even among the apostles. But you know what you can be and what you can do? You can refresh people like Titus did. Titus is an extraordinary person. All we know about him is the letter that Paul wrote to him and these occasional references to Paul's appreciation of him. He's known only by his reputation and by Paul's own testimony. But in his heart, Titus is Paul's spiritual child, an otherwise ordinary, otherwise nameless man who served Jesus by serving and encouraging Paul and by courageously stepping into Paul's troubles with him. Not everyone can be the point man, but everyone can encourage other people in this congregation and in your life who are doing their best to serve Jesus. If you want a real practical outcome of this of this sermon, sit down, think about three people who have taught you and blessed you in your own walk with Jesus and send them a text or a note or an email. Send something to them this week to tell them that you saw something in God's Word that reminded you of them and say thank you. That might just be the wind in their sails that they need to keep on moving forward with Christ. A second thing I learned is this, never give up on people coming back to God. Paul says, in candid language, I was depressed. I had trouble everywhere around me, and I had fear deep inside me, but he never gave up. He held his breath and gritted his teeth and sent the painful letter, knowing that it was a make-or-break moment, and by God's grace and the good work of Titus taking the message, those people came back. Never, ever give up on people coming back to God. And that is because, number three... We always need to remember that God makes His saints and His servants out of sinners. Paul has great compassion, great empathy, great understanding, great mercy toward the Corinthians because he himself remembers what he was rescued from. The false teachers that assault Paul, Paul was reminded that there was a time when he was a false teacher. The people who hate Jesus, Paul can't help but remember that there was a day he hated Jesus. These frightened, easily confused, easily distracted Christians, Paul can't help but remember that he was once an instrument of persecution that killed people, imprisoned people, and scattered congregations. And if you can hold on to the fact and remember of what Jesus rescued you from and remember that the raw material of your sinful behavior by God is exactly how God is going to get the glory to make you now into His chosen saint and make you, since Jesus is not physically present on the earth, a servant in the name of Jesus, you can have hope for the future and find joy for your own journey of service. And I pray that you'll find it, and I pray that you'll take it, because serving people in the name of Christ is the hardest thing you will ever put your hand to doing. Nobody said it would be easy, certainly not Christ, certainly not the apostles. They never said it would be easy. They only said it would be entirely worth it. So let's be those causes of joy, let's be those grateful encouragers, and let's keep serving people in the name of Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Let me direct your prayers, if I could be so bold, along two ways. First, are you yourself serving anyone? Or do you have I used to disease? Did you get discouraged? Did somebody hurt you along the way and you just pulled back? 
You don't have to start with big things, but Christ wants every person who names Him as Savior to be in His service to other people. So if you don't have such, if you're serving, if your time, if your financial giving, if your prayer life, if your conversation does not reflect service to other people, would you take a moment and just talk to Jesus about that and ask Him to put you back on track? And a second question. None of us are Paul. Who can you serve as a Titus this week? Who are you going to send those notes to? Who are you going to call? Who are you going to text after this service to say thank you? Your prayer, your ministry, your example made a difference to me. I'm walking along behind Jesus because I saw you doing it first. I was headed off the rails, but your friendship, your intervention put me back on the path. I'm still with Jesus in large part because God, who comforts people, used you to bring me back. Make a note of it. Don't just make it a good resolution. Decide now who you're going to encourage in the name of Christ. Lord, our desire as a church family in all three services, all across this campus, and what sometimes matters most, the work that is done off this campus Monday through Saturday until we gather for public worship. We all need to be of service to others. Not all of us in a congregation this size. Not everybody wants to, but we all need to, and we all should. So I pray that you would breathe your precious, sweet life and hope into those who are discouraged, that you would make us all, Lord, people like Titus who would encourage those frontliners and that you would give us all, Lord, a place of service. And if there's sin between us and you, God, may you work in this congregation and in individuals and in families a godly grief that would be painful but only for a moment and would be replaced by the absolute amazing joy of coming back to Jesus and walking with him friend, before I'm done praying, let me ask you, are you close to Jesus? If not, relief is a prayer away. It's called repentance. It will result in your obedience and in the greatest joy you've ever felt in your life. If you know that there's distance between you and the Lord, take care of that right now while I'm quiet.